<laughs> and action. We are back. We're here. We're here. We're not, not queer, queer, but we support the we queers. Support, we always support. We, we support. always support all of the LGBTQIA+. We love you. We see you. We're here for you. We're going to defend you. Did you say you. AI+. IA+. Oh, I was like, AI is part Did of Did I say now? AI? I could have. Listen, we're going to listen to it back, and you're going to tell me LGBTQIA+. Because I don't think AI should be part of it. I think that's a different. <laughs> that's a whole. I don't know. If, it, if AI becomes sentient, I might want to protect it. You know, I mean, if it creates its own conscious, like, I don't know if I, I'm too empathetic. That's the thing. I'm that's, too empathetic. And that's why I shouldn't be in charge of AI. Like if I had to like, if I had to, if AI. So stop calling her and asking her to be in charge of AI. Please stop. Oh my god! I have to tell you tell about me. a crazy thing that happened. Ugh, um, we so I work at this house in Brooklyn, and they have cameras. Wait, is it Full House? <laughs> it's our house <laughs> in, in the, the middle, middle of, of Brooklyn. Brooklyn. So we. So I get a call from my boss. It's like, "Hey, are you busy?" And I was, but I said no because I'm a good worker and I can't. I'm just a girl who can't say no. And she was like, "The police need video because there's a, there was a shooting." And they need you told video this of the story already. I have, haven't I? Mm-hmm. D- and got any others? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do have a fun oh, story, please. Okay, so this weekend, while you were gallivanting away, which, by the way, I just want to say, Quinn did invite. I did get an invite. Okay, I was on the invite list, but I politely declined because Carrie's been traveling a lot, as you well know. Um, I worked a wedding. Oh, how'd it go? Of a son of a famous chef. Cool. David Burke. Oh, was it David Burke's son? Yeah. I bet the food was fucking... <laughs> it was incredible. I didn't get enough of it, sadly. But here's the deal. I was supposed that to... That gives me anxiety. To be at a David ate, Burke wedding. I ate all of the appetizers. They, like, they, they like shut down the kitchen. Here's what's crazy. The kitchen, the venue, mm-hmm. wouldn't let us use their water. What? Yeah. Wait, is it in the middle of the desert? Why Why were they Because of the venue. The venues be venuing. They were like, oh, you can't use this water. They were terrible. I feel like, can I say, I don't think I signed an NDA. I'm like worried because my friend who runs You're the fine. weddings like listens to our podcast. You're fine. Anyway, the food was absolutely incredible. In fact, I was supposed to leave earlier than vendor meals. And I stayed for two hours to get a vendor meal. Oh my god! I definitely would have. Right? I mean, like, are you kidding? Of course I'm sure I did. The food was insane. Okay, so it was like prime rib. Uh huh. There was chicken. There was salmon cooked beautifully. There was pumpkin ravioli. There was delicata squash, which you know I fuck for delicata delicata squash. I've got some in the fridge. We gotta make it. Let's okay. make it tonight. I'll make it. Would you want me to make dinner tonight? Would that help you? Yeah, but can I hand you recipes? Yeah, of course. I know what is for dinner. Do you want me to make Let's you make dinner? Let's make it together. What I'm saying is, is I'm Teamwork here. makes the dream work, but if you'll sue, it would help. <laughs> oh, I love a sous chef. I'm in. Okay. Um, like a delicious, I didn't, okay, I did not get some of this bread, but on the table, there was like fresh sourdough bread, like torn in half with compound butter. Just like heaps of butter. There was like an insane charcuterie situation with like pounds of cheese. There was a raw bar 
with oysters, crab, which by the way, I didn't get because I felt like I was working still. Yeah, you can't go up to the And I can't go to the raw bar. You can't go to the raw bar. That was tough. It depends what you're wearing. You should have brought a change of clothes. I was working at the time though. That was like within my, because it was during appetizers and cocktail hour, but I did eat all of the appetizers past, except for- I love the past. I do love a past. What was the strongest past? Ooh, I actually didn't have um, the ahi tuna, which was upsetting because I wanted it on the cucumber, but I think my favorite past- Crab cakes crab and a cake. pretzel crust. Yeah, that does sound good. <laughs> was, so I like, you know, you went and had like a beautiful. So on Saturday do you think night. When I turn 50, I should just do. I got to find a way. It's got to focus on past. I got to do. Um, Quinn, why do you mean when you turn 50? What are, what are you waiting for? Are you worried you I won't ignorant? turn 50? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a callback to last and episode. And that's a callback to do, do I have cancer? Do we, does Quinn have cancer? Tune in next week, but we'll find right out. out. Do you love a cliffhanger, folks? I do love a cliffhanger, <laughs> especially so when it's literally me it's... hanging on the side of the cliff, and the cliff's name is Cancer. And it's hang in there, baby. <laughs> Don't break a nail. You'll go down. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, is like, here's, okay, do you want to do like, as your sous chef tonight and in life, mm. do you want me to be prepping anything for this decision? And like, how fast will you tell me? How fast? Like, should I be waiting? I'll tell everybody day of. I'm going to do a text that Do you a group text? Paste. No, I'll do a copy paste. That's that's reasonable. I don't like group text. I have to tell you, I'm on a very large group text with all the moms from the neighborhood. It brings me more anxiety than anything else. Do you, have you muted it? No, 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 no. I no, want, you mute it so that you can just like access it when you want I like on the wall, but I it's a what I don't like about it is that I usually know who I am in a space so you're like in a room and you're like who's in this room and you code switch your personality based on that Mm -hmm. and I don't know this room well enough and what's disturbing about it is there's like three or four women on it that I'm super close to Mm -hmm. one that I'd consider like one of my best friends and then there's like people that I am friendly with and have hung out with at like six to eight parties, but not gotten super close to yet. And then there are people that I um, have seen once or twice. And then there's like one or two women that I'm like, who is that? So okay, good. It's not as bad as hate. These are potential friends. I don't have anyone on it I don't like. It's more that I just don't know some of them. And it's a feeling of like, I don't know how to be in this space. And the space is the worst space possible because it's cyberspace. <laughs> and so it's literally like, you know, you know how people read into tones and it's so I just I always get really anxious because I was talking to one of my friends about it. She feels the same way where she's like, yeah, every time I text something in that thread, if I'm trying to be funny and like no one responds, I like spiral all day. Or if I'm trying to be helpful and no one responds, I spiral all day. And I know she, that She's feeling. like, I think the safest thing is to not say anything and then wonder if everyone just thinks you're a bitch. And so that's what I've Or you kind just of like, with. you give a thumbs up, you give a heart. By the way, I do suggest muting it, which is that it won't give you notifications when it comes up, mm-hmm. but you, you'll see that people text and you can go and check on it when you're ready. Because sometimes like the ding, I'm not interested in. Um, oh, I have to tell you. So- my mom also what happened on Saturday. My mom's been stressed. She's been having a stressful time. My my grandma fell mm-hmm. and she broke her shoulder and she needs surgery mm-hmm. on Saturday, which is scary. Um, not something you want, you know, to receive, not information you want. Um, there's just been like a lot going on, unfortunately, in my mom's life. And um, 
so I like mom's telling me about this and you know I'm really always happy to talk to her about it and you know I love being an ear to what she's going through um and so she's like telling me about sort of what's going on in her life and I'm at this wedding and I'm like okay I love you I'll talk to you later (laughs) not like 20 minutes later I get a call from my mom and she's like Carrie and I was like yeah mom she's like guess what I just got a call about and I was like what she was like I'm getting the house painted and a guy fell off our roof and the ambulance is in front of our house oh no I think the guy is okay I have not heard anything my mom's like I think he's okay hopefully he fell on the border between her house and the neighbor's house (laughs) that's an unfortunate callback that I had to make Maybe it's the neighbor's fault and but they'll be the she ones called that get sued. Me and, and I just was like, you know that feeling? I don't know if you know this feeling, Quinn. I don't know if you can like relate to this feeling of things just like piling on and on and on and on and on and on. No. No, you can't. Okay. Well, I never next- have had a trip to the emergency room followed by a biopsy followed by no. a guy flashing his penis at me. Right. Okay. I didn't know if you knew. I didn't know if you could. Time. Okay. So you haven't. So you no. can't relate. Um, But like my mom called and it was that moment of like her being like... <laughs> Can you believe this? It's like that moment mm-hmm. of exasperation. Yeah. And maybe like, maybe there's just something in the water right now. Yeah. When yeah. it rains, it motherfucking pours. Um, you know, it was so funny. I was talking to my sister on the phone the other day about, you know, my health concerns and stuff. And she's like, at least you don't live in LA. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, let me tell you something. <laughs> I went to the gynecologist to get a pap smear. And here's how that went for me. I'm on the phone and they said, but it's just a, they over and over on the phone said to her, but it's just an annual that you want to see the doctor for. And she said, no, I want to see the doctor for an OBGYN for a pap smear. And they were like, but is that an annual? Uh, they thought it was like an annual, like a full bot. I don't know. Like a how wellness you doing? visit. Uh, hi, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. They thought it was a handshake. And she was like, I want you to shake more than my hand. <laughs> I want you to put a speculum up inside of me. So she kept saying, I'm coming in for an OBGYN visit. I'm coming in for a pap smear. That is what I'm here for. I'm here for a pap smear. So she goes there in person and she's in the waiting room and they keep being like, what are you? So you're here for a, and she's like a pap smear. <laughs> like how many people are going to make me like spell out what I'm here for? This P-A-P? is, why isn't anyone writing this down? So why is it called a they pap smear? They send her, a terrible name. They send her to the office and the doctor walks in and the doctor <laughs> is on an IV through her hand. And she says to Brianna, uh-huh. and you're here for an exam, like just a, or a annual or something. Brianna goes, I am here for a pap smear. And the woman looks at her hand, which is again, attached <laughs> to an IV. And she says, hmm, well, I guess I can do the exam with one hand. She's going to give Brianna a pap smear with one hand. And Brianna goes, well, what's... I'd like um, to. I'd like to, please. Well, what's the IV about? And the woman goes, oh, it's vitamin C. We can just do them here whenever we want. They have lots of different (laughs) supplements available, which is fucking the most LA thing I've ever heard in my my life. life. That these doctors are going in and just (laughs) tapping into the freebies while on the job just for fun and then she's gonna give my sister a one-handed pap smear because one of because she's getting her daily dose of c do you die 
that this woman's not like, I'm at work. Maybe I should make both hands available a as doctor. a fucking physician. I am a doctor. Also, no. in annual, you got to feel the boob. Are you just like She's sitting coming here like- in. I said whether or not she was going to be the pap smear. It's already- It's in, weird as hell. It is la la land bananas that she's in there. Going, I'm going to get my C-dose while I do any amount of talking to a patient. Girl, take a vitamin like the rest of us. Yeah. I Are mean, you high? <laughs> <laughs> you fucking high off vitamin C. What was the first one you did when you got to work today? What'd you hook yourself up to, babe? Like, Jesus. come to work. <laughs> you know what? So Again, Brianna was like, LA, I just can't hear. I was, and so did she do a one-handed pap smear? I think that's Respecting what happened. speculum, you just really stick it right in there. I, Maybe she's got good aim. I think Brianna probably gave herself a pap I'm smear. I'm sure she did. I'm sure Brianna was like, I guess I'll stop when it says go. <laughs> It's so insane. I mean, that is so insane. Absolutely not. Speaking of a uh, OBGYN, I uh, I caught a call from. Uh, it's I'm a little conflicted. I don't know what to do. Mm. I got a call from Planned Parenthood because mm-hmm. I'm getting my annual Pap smear mm-hmm. with them, and because um, they take my insurance, no brags. Oh, I also got a note that said my insurance is ending. <laughs> Because it doesn't exist. I love those. You just got to argue your way out of that. It's a fun. It's (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) You lie. So anyway, so I. uh, You just need a vitamin C drip. And then you're going to feel better (laughs) and my insurance can keep going. So they, I called the uh, parent and I was like, I have a, you know, this IUD, 10 years, but I saw on your website, it's 12 years. He's like, yeah, it's 12 years. So yeah, I have two more years. Take them. Right. Yeah, fucking take them. What's the worst that could happen? They said, like, maybe, like, they're like, we just haven't, I don't know. So we'll see. Will I, will I be pretty? Will I be pregnant? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's an IUD. 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 That's a good parody. I got to do it. Okay. Anyway, you're listening to Truly Darkly. That's Quinlan Posner. And that's Carrie Ipema. And we're going to tell you two stories. But first, we we have four people to thank. The first person that we're going to thank today, the is first person's name is Aaron C. Aaron C. Aaron C. Aaron, Aaron C. C. It's not Aaron A or B. It's Aaron C. Aaron, did you get that C from a drip? Were you hooked up to a drip to get that little C? Aaron C. I don't need my vitamin C because I have enough of the C. It's in the form of Aaron C. Because you are my sunshine. <laughs> That's vitamin D. Oh. You are my orange juice. You are my... Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, this one has a pronunciation note. Okay. This is Arista, but it's pronounced not like I said it. Because I always want to say... It. No, I think I am saying it right. She said Arista. Yeah, wrist. Arista. Wait, can you tell me what that... Just read the whole thing. I put R-I-S in bold, so I know that that's where you put Arista. Instead of Arista? On the wrong syllable. She's saying Arista. Arista. But I'm saying it right, right? Arista. 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 You are a missus of the party. We love you. Arista. 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 Shake your little Arista. Shake your wrists and your fingers and your toes. Pick your nose. Pick Let's go your... on a walk and we'll have a talk and I'll be in your ears on my podcast. Arista. Arista. We love you. We missed you. Great. Um, Believe it or not. Two more, two more names to bring to the table here. Um, how about 
Mackenzie S. Mackenzie S. You are the best. We love you, Mackenzie S. Let's Mackenzie, get- Mackenzie, you are so frenzy. You're super frenzy because you're my friend and you're my friend till the end. And you bend over backward for me. You give your money to my bank account, you see. And that helps me to feel very rich. Mackenzie, you are not a bitch. bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Oh, we have a guy. Peter? Yeah. I had to tell you because I know Peter. You do? I do. That makes more sense now. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, Peter's amazing. Peter and I, we know each other. We went to IU together and he played the Ivories. He's an incredible pianist. And he even helped me also do auditions when I was in Chicago. He's a lovely, lovely, wonderful, wonderful human. Well, then let's really make sure that he's we a musician. Let so Peter this feels know. like a lot of stress. Peter is a name for a dick. Peter plays piano. He's a pianist. That also sounds like penis. Peter, what's with all this dick energy? Is it because you're a guy and you mean so much to me, Peter? I remember, I remember the times we hung out in hotels and I talked about bagels. We love you. We love you. Thank you for joining Patreon. We adore you. Schlong. Um, Same. This is a story all about how you told the story first, and then we flipped upside down, and then I told the story right back at you, and that's how the podcast went, and that's factual. So I think I need to go first then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you were saying, but I... Cool. All right, so I'm doing the story of Carol Ann Fugate. Great. Okay, I got this information from Wikipedia, Guardian, Distractify, E! News. No brags. Okay, so we're going back in time. Carly Ann Fugate, she is born in 1943, and she lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. So a little bit of her backstory growing up. At eight years old, her biological father walks out on the family. He's a verbally abusive alcoholic, in my opinion. Good riddance. Get out of there. We're not interested. Um, She gets older. Her mom... Um, marries like you her. Do. She gets older, like one tends to do, unless something bad happens, and then you stop getting older. Which that's actually why we're here to talk. Or unless you're Benjamin Button, you can't. But he gets older. His ages. He gets, ages, young, he gets old. But he's he's aging. But in a but he ages in a weird way. I think we're gonna have to agree. To also, disagree do on we want to just say too that like he died as a baby, but he was also born as a baby? Kind of weird. Okay, I guess he couldn't get out of the. It was like an old man. You know what I mean? No, like old no. man's. He would have exploded. Do you know her. what I mean though? Yeah. It's kind of no, confusing. That's it's kind of a loophole they don't attack. It's like any time travel story always has the moment where you're like, but it wouldn't really work because. Kate Blanchett, right in. See what's up. Okay. So uh, her mom, Velda, remarries this guy, Marion Barlett. Marion is Marion. Okay. Like a girl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No relation to Paige. No relation to Paige. Okay, got it. Married like a girl. Um, so her mom remarries, um, and Carol, her sister Barbara, are from her mom's first marriage. And then she remarries this guy, Marion Barlett. Um, he's older, but then they have a kid. Um, so it's her step, her step sister. I said stepdaughter, and I was like, that's not right. It's her half-sister is Got really it. what it is. So by the time she's 13 years old, she's living with her sister, her mom, her stepdad, and her two-year-old half-sister, Betty Jean. 
because it's the 50s. So, of course, the kid's name is freaking Betty Jean. Um, What's important is that her stepdad treats her and her sister Barbara like they're his own kids, which we love to see. We love to see it. Yeah, we do. So she's 13 years old and, you know, her sister is dating. Her sister's older. She's dating and like through friends of a friend, um, she meets this guy, Carol Ann Carol, meets this guy, Charles Starkweather. Now, here's the thing. Charles Starkweather is like not a catch. I wouldn't say he's like a good guy. I think like we're going to see that this is he's definitely not a good guy and it sucks that she's introduced to him and that she has a crush on him and that they end up having a relationship. He is five foot five, no shame in the height game, um, but he's like very influenced by James Dean. He wears a motorcycle jacket. He has red hair. Again, not a knock on red hair. He has bow legs. He has a speech impediment, which also means he was bullied as a kid. All of these things don't mean much except the fact that when he got older, as the third out of seven kids, um, he dropped out of high school. He worked as a garbage man. He had like a really bad temper. He had a chip on his shoulder. And he's 18 years old. She's 13 years old at this point. So I don't know if there's like red flags. That's a red flag. Yep. There's like a lot of red flags there. And again, like none of them, like if someone's like, oh, he has red hair. That's not the red flag. The red flag is that he is 18 and she's 13 and that he has a bad temper. And a garbage man with red hair. <laughs> That to me is less of that. <laughs> no, I meant all combined. All combined, it doesn't look good. All combined is like not a good look, but she's 13 years Anything old. Anything alone I would take. Yeah, and I think together. like the fact is, is that they started seeing each other, I think, because her older sister was like, oh, this is great because then like she can go on double dates with the guy that she likes that would eventually become her husband. Mm. So um, another thing about Charles Starkweather, doesn't his name just sound foreboding? Yeah, Starkweather. Yeah, but I also love it. Like, I would change my name to that. I wouldn't after this story. Ooh. You're going to okay. really take that back. You're going to be embarrassed that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're going to be wait. super embarrassed. In fact, <laughs> too late. Can't cut it out. Okay, so he's obsessed with status, and he even talks about how, like, death is a great equalizer. Ooh. Okay. Big red flags. There's, like, a fucking banner waving. So... It is the late 50s. It's late 57, early 58. There are some reports that say that Carol broke up with Starkweather, Charles. Um, I couldn't totally corroborate this, but what we know is this. It's January 22nd, 1958. Velda, Carol's mom, calls Charles and is like, hey, I need you to pick up some old rugs and bring them to the house. This is according to Charles. He gets there like around 1.30 in the afternoon, and Velda and Marion, mom and stepdad, and Betty Jean, half-sister, are at the house. Um, Velda apparently talks to Charles and says that she doesn't want him coming around anymore. She doesn't want him around her daughter, um, and he talks back to her. Apparently, she hits him. He hits her back. Um, This is according, again, we don't know the only person who's there is Charles, and I wouldn't call him a reliable witness and source because shortly after this altercation, he pulls out a gun and he shoots Carol's mom, Velda, and he shoots her stepdad, Marion. He then takes the gun and he clubs the two-year-old child to <gasps> death. What? Yes. According to Carol, who's 14 years old at this time, she's 14, her story is that she 
comes home from eighth grade. I like can't even. You know. She comes home from eighth grade and she finds Charles there waiting for her with a gun. And he tells her that her family is being held hostage. And if he listens to her. If she listens to him. That's what I meant to it'd say. It'd be really weird if he backwarded that. <laughs> if I listen to you, it'll all be okay. So what do you want to do? <laughs> Let my family go. So, oh God, that's so embarrassing. I was See, like, at a you point, were the I'm one like, that's embarrassed. I, I'm so embarrassed. I'm always embarrassed. But like, tell me what else is new, you know? So he has a gun. He says her family's being held hostage and that um, she has to do everything he tells her. And if she does, then her family would be safe. So according to her, she does not know that her family is dead at this point. But he, over the next, but over the next six days, Charles keeps her in that house. Visitors come to the door. They turn everyone away. Extended family starts to get like really concerned and worried. They don't know the family is dead. Do you know at this point what he did with the bodies? Okay. They are in the back. I think one is in the chicken coop. One is in the outhouse. Yeah. Um, but they are outside of the house. Got it. She posts, Carol posts a note on the door that says, stay away, everybody's sick with the flu, Miss Bartlett. And she would later say that this is like a, um, that this was like a call for help because nobody in the house went by Miss Bartlett. Oh. Anyway. Uh, I don't think a lot of people would get that, I don't think a lot of people would get that, Carol. I think that it's the edge of smart, but too Well, we'll see where the story goes. So her grandma comes to the house, tries to get in. They don't let her in. She then goes to the police, and she's like, something is wrong. No one's been able to get in the house in six days. I don't know what's happening. Just things feel weird. She goes to the police. The police then go to the house. Carol comes to the door, and she looks okay. She looks safe. So they're like, oh, everything's fine, Mm -hmm. and they leave. So at this point... According, you know, Charles, they're like, oh, the police are on to us. We need to we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. We need to walk. We need to get out of here. We need to beat it. So at this point, it's a little bit confusing whether Carol found out that her family was, in fact, dead. That is a little bit of a, a gray water. area. That's muddy water, which we'll get into later. But she doesn't know for sure they're dead. I think in some reports, she says that she does not know yet. And in some reports, it says that she does. On January 27th, six days after he killed three of her family members, the two of them fled. On the same day at 4 p.m., her Charles' brother goes to the house and he finds the bodies of all three of those family members in the outbuildings on the property. So the first thing they do is they take a car and they head to Bennett, Nebraska, where they enter the home of 70-year-old August Meyer. They shoot him to death. He is dead. They then leave that place where the police will eventually find his body. But then Mm -hmm. they hitch a ride from two high school sweethearts by the name of Carol King, who was just 16 years old, and Bobby Jensen, who was 17 years old. They pull a gun on them and they order them into a storm cellar. While the two, while the couple is tied up, apparently Carol is listening to the radio and Charles shoots Jensen, the 17-year-old boy, and he tries to rape Carol. But he can't. So he shoots her and then he stabs her in the genitals. 
we will later find out that he is impotent, which I'm sure is leading to a lot of this rampage. Mm -hmm. Um, The two of them are discovered, and so the police are investigating what's happening nearby, and a waiter recognizes Carol's picture from a nearby diner that she came in and ordered hamburgers. So the police are now on the trail of Charles and Carol. They know something's going on, and they're following them. At this point, they are the most wanted couple in Nebraska. Newspaper articles are coming out, and they've come out with the narrative that it's like these two teenagers who are in love are on a murder spree. The next thing they do is they get to the home of this guy, C. Lauer and Clara Ward. They are a couple, and what's significant about this house is that Charles knew of this house because it was on the, his route as a garbage man, and also he's helped shovel snow for this house before. So he's done day labor stuff at this house before. So on January 28th, 1958, he rocks up to the house, and there in the house is housekeeper Lillian Fensel as well as Clara. So Lillian recognizes him. She's 51 years old. She lets him in because, again, she knows him. She doesn't know that like he's on this murder spree yet. So he comes in the home. So she sees that he's threatening and something is wrong. So she gets out a gun and she comes at him with a gun. He then wrestles the gun away. He ties up the housekeeper Lillian and the wife Clara, who's 50 years old, and he stabs them to death. Lauer, the husband, who's 47 years old, he comes home after having lunch with the governor of Nebraska to find this scene. And Charles shoots him. And then him and Carol... They steal a bunch of jewelry, take a coat, and leave behind Carol King's school jacket at the scene of the crime, and they take the car and they beat it. So the police are just like following them after they're at all of these places. It's like very, um, what is that? Natural born killers. It's interesting that you say that because that's what that's based on. This is is the case that it's based on. Yeah. 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 So... What is interesting about this is that Carol will later say she did not know that her family was dead. But what's significant is that while the killers were at the ward's house committing these atrocities, um, their newspaper arrived while they were there. And what the police do notice is that they had cut the picture of themselves that was on the front cover of that newspaper, which included information about her dead family. So I don't know what could happen and she still might not know and maybe he saw it and cut the picture out mm-hmm. or she now knows about the dead family. What is interesting is that these pictures, these this newspaper cutout was actually found on them later, um, which cast doubts on the claim that she didn't know her family was dead. Mm-hmm. But again, it could have been that he... But even if she didn't know her family's dead, she's going with him and she's party to all these things. Well, that's She's the big not question. The truth. So the question is, is she, for her safety, following this guy around while mm-hmm. he does all this shit, not doing anything because she's 13. 14 she's at this scared, point. Yeah. Well, she's scared out of her mind. Or did she go, yeah, let's kill my parents and make mm-hmm. a mad dash for mm-hmm. it? Um, of course, you know, Lauer, Ward, who was just at lunch with the governor of Nebraska, he you know, is a well-connected guy. So as soon as he's found dead, the governor orders the National Guard to join the manhunt. And newspapers, again, continue this story of this, like, murderous teen lovers. Um, So then January 29th, the next day, they come across this guy, Merle 
Collison, who's a 35-year-old traveling shoe salesman, and he's asleep in his car, and they take a gun and they shoot out the window. This guy wakes up to a gunshot. He tries to get out. They shoot him nine more times. Wow. I want to say they. What is Charles they? shot him nine yeah. more times. Um, so they get in the car, his car that is parked. Like, great, we have a getaway car. It has an emergency brake on it, which is a new feature. And Charles does not Can't know how to work it, it. So he's like trying to get this car moving. This guy named Joe Sprinkle sees two cars on the side of a road because of course his name is Joe Sprinkle. He gets out and he's like, hey, how can I help you? And so Starkweather points to his brake, but Sprinkle sees the rifle and a dead body. And so he grabs his own gun. And at that moment, a patrol car pulls up, just like who happened to be out on the road. At this point, Carol gets out of the car and she sprints towards the patrol car and she gets right in the car and she goes, help, it's Starkweather. He's crazy. He killed a man. 14-year-old gets out of the car, runs towards the police. Starkweather figures out the the brake situation. He peels away in his car and he speeds towards town. Now, at this point, they have a number of cars in pursuit of him. So they're chasing this guy as he's driving. And he doesn't stop until a bullet shatters the window behind him and the glass nicks his ear. He believes, Charles believes he's like bleeding out. So he stops the car. He gets out of the car. He tucks his shirt in and glares at all of the guns pointed at him. He gets to the ground with his hands on his head. The chase is over. They've got Charles Starkweather. There is this photo that came out because obviously the press was like chomping at the bit to get photos of him. There's this photo of him from the arrest. He has a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, which by the way, who the fuck is giving this guy a cigarette? He has his hands in handcuffs. He has blood on his white shirt all over him. Mm -hmm. And he looks completely unfazed. Mm -hmm. The two of them are arrested. Now, Mm -hmm. the police have this narrative that They are two murderous teenagers in love who were on a murder rampage, which, by the way, in addition to these victims, they also killed two dogs along the way. Two family dogs. injury, yeah. So at this point, Starkweather is arrested. He's in police custody. The sheriff's wife in this town is tasked with bringing Carol back to Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And while she's in the car with young 14-year-old Carol, while she's in the car with young 14-year-old Carol, she says that Carol tells her, isn't this coat nice? And that coat was Clara Ward's, one of the victims. Mm -hmm. So at this point, they have the two of them separated and they're hearing the stories. From what it sounds like, the police have this narrative that they are two murderous teenagers in love and that's the narrative that they want to continue Mm -hmm. carol is 14 charles is 19 years old so questions of like she like charles went through a psychotic break went on a murderous rampage and carol was just trying to protect herself those are the two stories that are conflicting and the police have aligned themselves with they want the murderous teens it's a better story they can do it they can move forward starkweather when he's arrested he never denies shooting anyone Early on in the interrogation, he says that he did hold Carol hostage. Yeah. He he corroborates Her that story. Action when she's able to escape is very is pretty telling, I right? Like she turn on and a dime I, like that, do you? No, I I mean I'm 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 inclined to believe a certain, but let's I can get through the facts too before we make that decision. Yeah, um, just because I feel like I like to jump for it, as you know. Well, no, I do too. Um, 
So initially when he's arrested, he corroborates her story that she was held hostage. And he says that he only murdered out of self-defense, which doesn't make sense. You walk into someone's home and then you murder them. That doesn't feel like self-defense to me. Um, what's also interesting in that is that this is in 1958 and the Miranda rights, that's something that comes out in 1966. So when Carol is arrested, um, there was no obligation to tell her that she was under arrest. So she did not know she was under arrest. There was mm-hmm. no obligation to tell her that she could remain silent or that she could ask for a lawyer. So at 14 years old, with not access to like any procedural crime dramas that we are all familiar with, mm-hmm. she has no clue how to act in this situation. From her perspective, she's just been held hostage and she's free and she's telling them all this information. So at this point, a prosecutor tells her that her family is dead. And to her, this is the first time that she finds out that her family is dead, Mm -hmm. which if that is the case, she has been held hostage and been going along with this guy who had already murdered her family, which was the threat he had made initially. Mm -hmm. Carol does admit at one point to holding a shotgun um, at Bobby Jensen and Carol King. At one point, that is the only time that she apparently has admitted to any sort of um, accomplice being party to this. But again, that to me is like she held a shotgun on him. He could have forced her. You know, I mean, again, there's like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. So. And at this point, there was, um, in December of 1957, which was before this murder spree, which happened at the end of January of 1958, there was a 21-year-old found murdered um, who was a night attendant at a gas station um, and um, on the outskirts of Lincoln. And he was found dead from a gunshot wound. And obviously, Starkweather is now the main tied. Yes, he's tied to that. Um, What's important is he will never be arrested for that crime, but they know it was him essentially because who else would it be in this moment? Which again would lend to this idea of like, was she privy to this? Because this was two months before he committed this murder spree. So on February 7th, Starkweather, while he's in jail, he writes a letter to Carol apologizing for harming her family and asked if she had been sincere when she told him she loved him. Um, and he wrote, you know, damn well, I would never shoot you in this letter, which by the way, why are we even letting this guy send a letter to this 14 year old impressionable girl? She writes a letter back saying that she never wants to see him again. And then at that point, his story changes. At that point, he says that she was an accomplice. At that point, he said that she went along with everything. Fascinating. What's interesting is there is a, um, show called the 12th victim which is going to cover a lot of this case that came out on showtime pretty recently i didn't get a chance to watch it um but from what i understand about it the the filmmaker who went through this started like really uncovering this case because a lot of times carol's now been maligned as a part of this killing spree essentially Mm -hmm. and when she had went to the sheriff's wife and said isn't this coast night isn't this a nice coat According to that documentary, there was a note in the pocket of the coat that says, help, police, don't ignore. But that never made its way into evidence when it went to Lincoln, when they went back to Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm. So there's like all these things that she was like maybe trying to communicate, but was never allowed to surface. So again, at this point, um, his story changes. He says that Carol was his partner in crime. He claims that she stabbed Carol King, that she killed Clara Ward, and that she killed Lillian Fence. He claimed she was the most trigger-happy person he'd ever seen. He alleged that she fired the last few shots at Merle Collinson after his rifle jammed. 
and this leads them to go to trial. The first person to go to trial is Charles Starkweather. And what's interesting is he goes in 1958, May 5th, which is pretty close after. He is actually only on trial for killing Robert Bobby Jensen, one of the victims, because his story changed. And so they were like, the one person we have pure is that he killed Bobby Jensen. So we're going to bring him to trial for that, Mm -hmm. for none of the other 10 victims. Oh, my God. Because he's one of 11. He went on 11 person, two dog murder spree. So he goes to trial for the murder of Bobby Jensen, just one. And he is, it seemed like the easiest to prove. The prosecutor's like, this is a nail, this is an open and shut case, easy. He pleads self-defense, but he is found guilty and he is sentenced to death. And, And he will later go on record as to say, you know, I wasn't tried for just one murder. I was tried for all 11, mm-hmm. which of course he was, but they, you know, of course. Totally, totally. He is sentenced to death. Carol Ann's turn to go to, to court, to go to trial. She has maintained her innocence. Um, she is 15 and she is tried for felony murder in the first degree in perpetration of a robbery and she pleads not guilty. The evidence that is used against her is that she had ample opportunities to flee. Mm-hmm. They also look at when she did find out about her parents' death. They use that newspaper article that's like she knew that her family was murdered, yet she still went along with this. Um, the jury found that her testimony saying that she was Charles' hostage was not credible. Charles himself testified at her trial, and he said that it was her that came up with this entire plan, that he told her that he'd kidnap her parents so she'd go along with him together. He, in fact, also said that if he was guilty and he was going to get the electric chair, which at this time he knew he was being sentenced to death, he said that she should be on his lap when he goes to the electric chair. She says that at this point she's like, I tried to escape that note that was signed Miss Bartlett was a way for me to go, hey, someone help me, something's not right here because nobody in the house went by Miss Bartlett. At this point, the media is really coming after her as well because they believe she's an accomplice in the crime and they've had that narrative and they're going to perpetuate that. And so when she's on the witness stand or when she's in the trial, she's kind of like subdued and vacant looking and distant. And so the media is like, oh, she's like sleepy and she's in love with him. And so they're perpetuating this narrative when like if you actually look at what happened, if you believe her side of the story is like she has no one. Her entire family has been mm-hmm. killed. She has mm-hmm. no one mm-hmm. sitting next to her. She's completely alone. Um, after the, the trial concludes and she is convicted, and to this day she is the youngest female in U.S. history that has been tried and convicted of first-degree murder at the age of 15 years old, um, she is sentenced to life imprisonment. And at this point, you know, um, she still proclaims her innocence. And when she goes to jail, she is put in solitary confinement for eight months. All the while, Charles is waiting for his execution and he becomes essentially a celebrity, as we've seen before. He's like Mm -hmm. a young man. I think people really are into him. He even goes as far as he writes an essay and it is published in parade while he is on death row that paints Carol as his full accomplice, which again, I don't know how like the media Everyone's like just listening to this guy. Totally. And he said, quote, in the article, at the time the spree was taking place, I was scared. I was going to give up. 
Carol then threatened out loud that she wasn't going to give up. With the shotgun laying across her lap with the barrel pointing directly at me and with her fast talking, she convinced me that we didn't have anything to gain by giving up. So he's maligning her in the press Mm -hmm. after she's been convicted. They're not letting her write any fucking articles. Mm -hmm. This 15-year-old girl. Um, Starkweather is executed by the electric chair. And Carol goes into solitary confinement. And then she goes into the general population. And she is a model prisoner. Like, doesn't step out of line. All the guards love her. Like, she is a good kid. In 1973, they end up commuting her sentence to 30 to 50 years as opposed to a full life imprisonment, which makes her at this point eligible for parole. Um, And what's surprising about this is she maintains her innocence. And as we know, when someone um, gets parole, they typically have to admit fault and admit remorse, right? Express remorse. She never does. In fact, she says she'd rather never get out of jail than say she was guilty. Yeah. Yeah. She is paroled, again, because she is a model prisoner. She served a total of 18 years, and she was so relieved. She leaves jail, but her name is already out there. She has, you know, I mean, the burden. Don't they give her a witness protection situation? No, why would they? She was convicted. She was guilty. You know, they commuted her sentence to 30 or 50 years. They didn't pardon her. They commuted her sentence. convicted that way as a minor as well as... Very well, intense. I think like, I mean, they didn't have the Miranda rights. Nobody had to read a Miranda rights. Like this is in the late fifties. So right, a lot of right. this stuff, like she didn't okay. victim recourse. When we look at a 13, 15 year old, I mean, I don't know what the like legal it's age of consent me. was, but like mm-hmm. this child, I mean, she was 13 when she met this 18 year old. It's got like a little bit of Amanda Knox vibes to me of like, this is the more fun story. Let's tell the fun story. Well, it was like, like before they even knew. Like a sexy vixen that wanted blood on her hand. Yeah, so she ended up getting released after 18 years, and she went on to work as a janitorial assistant, and she was a nanny for some families. And what's crazy is, like, even when, like, apparently an art, uh, uh, one of the movies or one of the made-for-TV movies came out, and a kid she nannied for was like, can you talk to my class? And so she went in and talked to the school about how bad decisions can follow you. But again, this whole time, she maintained her innocence. Mm In 2007, she met a man named Frederick Clare, um, and they ended up getting married. Um, sadly, that marriage ended after six years. When I thought you were going to say, sadly, that marriage ended in a murder spree. <laughs> I was like, God, she can't win. <laughs> she just picks the wrong guys. No, Frederick Clare, um, he got seriously injured um, in a vehicle accident. Um, he was driving a sport utility vehicle, and it went off road and overturned, and he died at the scene. He was 81 years old. In 2020. A sport utility vehicle, really? Yeah. At 81 years old. I just have never heard anyone call an SUV a sport utility vehicle. Is that what it is? They said, because it was in a vehicle accident. And I was like, I didn't, you know what? I didn't I think to get that was an SUV. be able to say it's a car accident and he drove his SUV. Well, a vehicle was like, well, I thought it was like, it was weird to me that I, that's wild. Let's just say he got in a car accident. <laughs> I'm sorry, because I read the S. I read the sports sport- utility vehicles when careening. Stop! I when I read that I was like, why can't they just say car I was like, accident? Carrie's really trying to get her word count up <laughs> in this essay. No, because when I read it, honestly, it was like I was like, why don't I say car accident? I was like, oh, it says it's a sports utility vehicle. Maybe What's it's that? like a maybe it's like an off-roading vehicle. I love like that. I didn't know. Totally. Jesus all right, Christ. All right. All right. Relax I over that. Well, he died in a, a car. Razz me all you freaking want. So in 2020, she tries to get a pardon. 
from the governor. Yeah. Um, and she's like, I've maintained my innocence. This burden of, you know, like that I am a, a murderer has affected my life. And I just want a little bit of freedom from it. She even had the support of several of the victim's families um, mm. to her name. Wow. Okay. Um, but it, her pardon was denied. Yeah. Um, the quote was, the purpose of the pardons board is to restore a felon's rights. And Claire's request was much, much broader than what board members could offer, essentially. Um, she went on a TV show called Lie Detector, which mm-hmm. we know is our favorite baby shower game. But what she did is she went on this show and she took a lie detector test. Again, like she's infamous. People know her. She takes a lie detector test, and when they tell her she passed the test, she breaks down and sobs. She feels like it gives her, like, a sense Mm -hmm. of freedom. Um, She says that people don't realize that, like, I lost my family, too, Mm -hmm. in this situation. That would be the hardest thing is she's this kid that needs so much help and support. Yeah. I don't know how she mentally got through that. Yeah. And this idea of the 12th victim on Showtime, the show, it's like – the idea is it's going through and being like, she's the 12th victim, but we treated her as the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and in it... A victim twice over. Yeah. And in the, the victim says the only two scenarios is that she's um, she's Machiavellian and particularly and a particularly manipulative 14-year-old or the police are complete idiots. Not only that, but the guy that you painted a picture of did not strike me as uh, someone that she could manipulate. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it didn't feel like that was the power dynamic in the relationship. And I know I don't know a ton about it. But but they wanted a Bonnie and Clyde narrative. Yeah. And so that's the narrative that they created. Right. And again, like the holes in it of like, did she know that her family was dead or was she just trying or did she feel safe enough as a 14 year old girl to like leave mm-hmm. it's just like there's so many questions and there's not enough answers mm-hmm. and again the, the decision of the police was already made up that she was involved in it they never treated her like a hostage and the first thing she does when she sees the police is she runs to them and gets in their car mm-hmm. and do you think that like as a I mean then they must have believed she was like manipulating from jump that she mm-hmm. knew she was as calculated as calculated could be Mm-hmm. And if she was, don't you think she would have put up a better defense if she was as calculating instead of like sitting vacant and lost? Don't you think she would have sold herself as the victim a bit more, mm-hmm. which is also something that I think is worth noting. Um, obviously, as you well pointed out, this story has influenced a lot of film and TV um, and music for that matter. Um, Badlands starring Martin Sheen and Sissy Saspec depict this. Um, Spacek. S- Spacek. Spacek. Um, featuring Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. Yes. Is that right? Um, Willie um, Harrelson, Woody, Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis were natural born killers. Um, in the song, We Didn't Start the Fire, they mentioned Starkweather Homicide as one of the Whoa. lists. The plenty of lists in that. Yeah. In that. Um, Bruce Springsteen's album, Nebraska, this lead song of it, Nebraska, is a song sung from Starkweather's point of view. And of course, I mentioned the 12th victim because, again, there were 11 victims of this murder spree of, you know, starting back in 1957 to when he was eventually caught from Charles Starkweather. And it's there claiming that, you know, she is, in fact, the 12th victim and she is still alive today. Wow. Yeah. But the youngest, the fact that it's 15 years old, convicted guilty. Insane. Truly insane. What a tale. I'd like to tell you a tale. Tell me a tale. Um, oh, God. That that 
uh, I got this information from, you know, that Truly Adventurous that I love? You love Truly well, they Adventurous. they broke out with another, like, oh, component. What a coup. It's called Truly Horror. And Quinn? They, they wrote, they, this woman, Celia Blancafort, wrote this incredible story. Um, and this is the story of... Well, no, I'm not going to. I kind of just want to dip in. Like, I dip don't in. Like I actually feel you. like, by the way, last week you mentioned that it's a heist. And I think you should cut out that it was a heist before you told the story. Great. Because I think like that was such a surprise if they didn't know. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And with this, I'm not going to tell you what kind of story, but just that we're in May of 1961. Ooh, similar, similar decade as mine. Actually, you, you know what? I'm going to go back even earlier. <gasps> but we are still in... Um, New Jersey. So here we are in New Jersey. We're in Montclair. Ernie Rivers is a little kid growing up there with his mom and dad, Ann Clark and Ernest Rivers Sr. Um, His dad, Ernest, was a fighter in an amateur boxing circuit. And it's like, yeah, like it's mob produced kind of situation. Not great. Um, He's also, I think, a construction worker. And his mom's really sickly, but because his dad doesn't have a very above board position in the community, um, you know, we're talking a lot about health insurance lately. Every time she has to go to the doctor, it's looked at as this major expenditure for the family and can they afford it? And if and I think that her health problems are complicated enough to where she sometimes goes to the doctor and they don't get an answer, really. Yeah. So then the dad is like. I'm so pissed that we spent that money. So not great. And when Ernie's eight years old, one of these times happens where the mom says, I really think I have to go to the doctor. And then she and her husband fight about it. And Ernest is like, Christmas is coming up. We need this fucking money for Christmas. You know what? This is a total pain. And he says to her something like, all you are is a doctor's bill to me. Mm. And that night she has a dream that he tries to kill her. In her dream. And when she wakes up, she's scared. She goes under the bed and gets where they keep their gun. She's holding the gun. She like puts it next to her. And then she's like, hey. And I think he's like asleep. And she says, are you sick of me? And he doesn't answer her. Probably because he's asleep. Um, and she shoots him. Again, this is where you need gun control. I mean, have you had a dream where Matt cheated on you? And you were so mad. Matt has them mostly. I think Matt and I both have only dreams where we cheat on each other, but not in the angry at each other way and the like, we wake up and we're both like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But that was really great for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lot of nighttime adventure in this house. Um, So (laughs) a neighbor heard the gun go off and shows up and Anne is like, oh, my husband shot himself. Um, All right, Anne, we got ballistics. She's not going to hold up in court. It's not going to hold up for the night, I don't <laughs> yeah, think. Seriously. Honestly, like, she right after is like, yeah, I did it. I was scared he was going to kill me. I really just wanted to beat him to the punch. I like, he was acting crazy. He said, I'm a doctor's bill. He just seems like he might have been. I got been... a little peeved at the guy. Well, and I think he's a hard husband. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think he's, I think he's a little bit. Abusive? Yep, to everybody <laughs> in the house. So yeah. I, I think, um. She gets sentenced to 18 to 22 years. Ernie gets put with his grandparents, and they live in a housing project in Newark. 
you can imagine it's very traumatizing for him to a lose kid, his yeah. mother and father at eight years old in different ways. But also his grandpa dies shortly afterward. Oh. So he's just dealt with a lot. And now he's living in the housing project for years. He's 13. He's there with his grandma, um, Mabel. and Great grandma name. Perfect grandma name. And they are um, living in this project. And one day Mabel's cleaning and a glass jar in the room with her falls off um, a, a dresser and breaks. He's in the other room and hears it. She's like, shit. He's like, what happened? She's like, I don't know. It was weird. This like jar fell off the table. Um, then two days later, he and his grandma are sitting at the kitchen table and six cups in the living room that are um, hanging off hooks on the wall mm-hmm. all crash to the floor like one after another. And that evening, a bunch of bottles break in the bathroom. It's like bottles all over the house are shattering. By the way, can I ask which grandparents is it? His his mom's mom. Okay. Yeah. Um. Then they see a bottle float and then crash. Okay. So they're like, what? And then, but it like floats. It's a bottle that was in the bathroom floating into the room there and then breaking. So she goes to that room to go check it out, but the door's closed, making it even weirder. Like, like yeah, the, like what the bottle? It already the door didn't make sense, yeah. but like then the door shut to where the the bottle would have originated. Everything about it is totally scary. She's scared that things are going to keep breaking, so she's like going into the bathroom and taking all the bottles and like lay, putting them on the fucking floor because she's like, "What is going on? My house is shaking." Maybe like she can't figure out how to make their space feel safer. Um, a neighbor of theirs, uh, Yetta, comes over. And the three of them witness the same thing, a cologne bottle coming out of the bathroom, floating into the living room, making turns in the middle of the fucking air, and then shattering itself against the floor. But like time suspended and time moving. So then when that happens, Mabel's like, about this, Yetta. Me and Ernie have been witnessing some weird shit over the last few days. I didn't tell you. How do you tell someone this is happening without sounding crazy? And while she's explaining it to her, it happens again. And like a lamp across the room shatters. And they're like, we shouldn't be here. This seems very dangerous. And while this is all going on, I also feel compelled to tell you that the mom has escaped from jail. And she's like at large. So... Things don't calm down. Things keep And fucking... she's a magician? Right. Oh right. And she's learned the magic. power of magic. <laughs> but the insidai, we'll call it because it's plural, the insidai of floaters and smashers is not declining at this point. If anything, it's increasing. And what will happen is Mabel and Ernie will go stay at a relative's house. They'll go stay at um, her daughter and son-in-law's. Um, they'll go stay with friends. They they aren't able to stay anywhere for long. And every time um, they come home, this is happening. And more and more people are are hearing about it. The right. press does eventually hear about it. And reporters want to come watch. So they show up and they witness this. Mm-hmm. So there's like a lot of people seeing this happen. And they 
coined the term project poltergeist because it's a poltergeist, but it's in the projects. That's I don't love that. No. I just call um, it because it's a project because you don't know what it is. Project. School polter- project. Yeah. It's it's poltergeist in the projects. The the project. they love alliteration. People love yeah, alliteration. Yeah, they do. Especially too in much, New Jersey. Maybe. Especially in Jersey. Sure. There has long been a held belief that the reason that not the reason. There's long been a held belief in the community of people that study paranormal events like this that the energy of children, especially he's like in a kind of prepubescent slash puberty age, like 13. And we've looked at a lot of these cases where they'll either become like um, a vessel mm-hmm. and be – Or a tract or like a lightning rod. Something like that. It's almost like there's something that happens hormones. at this age that the hormones are Dude, so powerful. the hormones are so powerful. And imagine you can think about what he's been through and the turmoil that resides inside of him. Yeah. And if you could bottle that, what would that energy look like? Yeah. It would look a lot like this. And so there's a side that says, there. there's like a, a group of people that will say like, yes, we see that this energy can can be found around these adolescents but through no fault of their own then there's a different thing of like yes it's their fault they're doing it somehow and we're not able to track it Mm -hmm. do you know um so the housing development because it's project housing has to open an investigation into what's going on and they're trying to figure out is he doing it they can't prove that there's any um, physical cause for this happening. Um, and the Newark Housing Authority, the NHA, is like, we don't know what to do. We need help. And they weirdly go to this guy, Edward Del Russo, who is a um, contractor, but also a self-proclaimed <laughs> exorcist. Oh, oh, a contractor and exorcist? I would love the business card. The combo pack is I love incredible. It. Um yeah. A concertist. I really like that. Yeah. And he did try to make a business card that said both. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I love that. Um, So his whole thing is like, no, no, I'm not special. We all can work with powers. But like most of us don't try or think we can. Um, And he's like, I got this. And he goes and does like a little ceremony in the house. And he has like a candle. And he's like, you know what? You're welcome. Solved. Did no. he do it? Oh. No, no, no. no I was no. really hoping for Even him. worse. Even worse. You made it worse. Spirits don't, don't like that sort of thing. Mm. So didn't They don't want to get right. kicked out. Nobody likes being evicted. Right. But enter another helper. The helpers are everywhere, as Mr. Rogers says. The next <laughs> one comes in the form of a professor from Rutgers, a real deal, a smarty pants, Dr. Charles D. Reg. He's a guy that's a professor, super interested in parapsychology, Um. And he knows all, all about RSPK, recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, which is basically like what we were talking about before, an energy. People are moving objects with their minds. Um, and he loves RSPK. He's like, I'm Jones in to see some RSPK. Respect, uh, respect for RSPK. I got <laughs> RSPK. Find out what it means to they. Um, Could have said May, but it's you know, May. <laughs> sure. Okay. So... <laughs> He's he's like, yeah, there's usually a human behind it, but not deliberately necessarily. And especially if they're an adolescent, it might be right that the energy field is 
creating wacky things to float around. Um, so he goes to check out the house. He sees things float around, really heavy, scary things. He watches like an iron float through the room with the fucking cord stretched out behind it, like not even dragging. And you're like, how would someone do that? It doesn't seem like a person could. He talks to Mabel. He talks to Yetta. And he's like, what's with the TV facing the wall? And they're like, well, it fell once. We don't want it to break. So now it faces the wall for like safety. And floaters and smashers are witnessed by him. He was like talking about shit. <laughs> we got floaters. We've got smashers. Smashers. Ooh, you don't want a smasher. I tell you that. <laughs> but as for Ernie being the respect cause of the this shit. Stuff, respect the shit. Respect, respect, respect the shit. So Ernie's with him during this. And he'll like be in a corner with Ernie witnessing something float or like right. holding so on like to Ernie. Ernie is not. And he's like, Ernie's scared. Like I'm feeling the energy of a kid that is scared. Um, and while he's there, somebody throws rocks through the window. Like there's these drunken people that are like, let us see your weird haunted house. And they're like, throw rocks at the window. So it feels so unfair. We're like, Ernie's a kid. He's been through so much. He's in a house where all this shit is happening. Right. And then there are people outside throwing rocks at his window. Like Provoking he's getting him. teased yeah. at school because this is happening where they're like, oh, show us the ghost, you know, whatever. Show us your house. Um and he got teased, I think, because his mom was in prison. I mean, I just think this Poor kid guy. is really having a fucking time. Um, when things go haywire, um, the doctor calls the police and they come and don't witness anything and like leave. They call Ernie's uncle William. He comes and the ghost goes after him and gets he almost gets hit in the head with an ashtray, and then he does get hit in the head with a pepper shaker and Two NHA agents come and they witness all these things too. So we have more witnesses. We have the uncle, we have the NHA agents. People are saying, we're, we're seeing this happen and it can't be Ernest doing it. Because Dr. Reg is like, I think that Ernie's not doing it, but I think he it is his energy doing it. He does these experiments where he's like, oh, pick a thing, like focus your energy on an object. And then he does record that when Ernie was like, that mustard jar, he's like, okay, focus on it. And he does, and it floats and breaks. So it does feel like it's Ernie doing it in that he doesn't know he's doing it, but all his energy is doing it. Um, Poor kid. Yeah. And even like when the mustard jar floats, it shatters before hitting anything. Like his energy shatters it. I he's think, like 11. Huh? He's like 11. He's 13. No, but. Oh, he's like 11 from fucking Stranger Things. Yeah. Yes. Where it's like he needs help harnessing mm-hmm. this energy. And also what they note with this stuff is once they're through the puberty wall, like it usually stops. It's like. The, get those hormones going. Let's yeah. get them through. Um, Dr. William G. Roll is a really big name in the Psychical Research Foundation at Duke University. He's like. Everyone's like, this guy knows his shit. And Dr. Reg knows that. So he calls him and is like, you got to get involved in this case. Ernie's been staying with his aunt and uncle. No shit has gone wrong there so far. Um, And so they're like, well, we want Roll to see some shit go down. We know that shit goes down in this apartment when Mabel and Ernie are there. 
So let's get everybody together. So they do that. And he, he totally witnesses things, including the fact that unrelated to this, Mabel like tells them, I think that Ernie stole money from me. And they're like, oh, and she's like, yeah, I have like this money in my purse. It's gone. And then Ernie goes to take out the trash and is like, the money that you think I stole is like scattered everywhere. It's all over this room. And part of them are like, oh, is the evil spirit trying to like make it look like it's this kid? Like, is it like framing Ernie is the idea. They witness some stuff. Ultimately, it's not safe there. They send him back to his aunt and uncle. But the aunt and uncle are like, you can't stay here forever. So again, they have to go to the apartment. And again, they're getting terrorized. So every time they try to find a different place to live, they're getting booted out. And then basically, the police look at it as an issue of like, she can't provide a safe space for him. So they separate them, which is horrible because this kid has been separated from everyone. Right. Um. I also wanted to cite because this article did a really good job breaking down this racial stuff that was like, there was another family on Long Island, Roll, got involved with their case in 1958, and they were the supposedly the motivation for the movie Poltergeist. They were a white family, and when you look at how they were treated, like as far as the resources they were given and the fact that the police were like, we need to help you. It's very different from how this black family was treated. Right. And there was a lot of compassion. For the white family. Right. It was not provided to the, okay. The black family, it was like, you're doing this somehow. Right. We don't believe you and you're a nuisance. And we're going to do the fastest thing we can to make it stop, which is not in the best interest of the child necessarily. Roll doesn't believe that. Neither does Reg. They, like, want to study this. They want to help the family. They bring them to their office. Things happen in the office. Like, his book floats off the table. What is going on? They put them up at a hotel, and the hotel gets wrecked. And they, like, have to go secretly fix the hotel to not get, like, fined. But, like, the hotel gets wrecked because there's just so much turmoil. Um, Jesus. Ar- surrounding this kid. Um, So... They test Ernie's brainwaves and they're like, the brainwaves are normal, but there are these weird spikes that we don't know what they are, which seems like I'm saying two different things. But they're basically like, he's not cuckoo crazy, but there's these weird spikes we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they start to talk to Ernie a lot about his life. And they're like, this is a kid that's very closed. Like he's bottling everything going on inside him and there's so much sadness and fear and rage and he's in this school where he's getting picked on by everybody and he's just lost his mom and dad like there is no stability and his mom is missing still but then they also were talking to him and finding out about like the violence that happened in the household and One thing that's really interesting that Mabel says is she's like, his mom was like the way he is, like held everything. Mm -hmm. And he knows that. And one day when she stopped holding everything, she killed his father. He could be really scared of what is inside him and holding it even more tightly as a result. Yeah. One thing they do at this point is they put Mabel and Ernie in a two-way mirror room. They don't know that they're being observed, but they are. And Mabel 
leaves to go get something. And they see Ernie find a couple of tape measures and he puts them in his pocket. She comes back and at one point when she's not looking, Ernie throws them at her. And then is like, they floated kind of thing. And they're like, what? Okay, we just physically saw this kid throw these. But there let's talk to him about it. Where like that he's been with- completely where he, there's no way he could. There's have. no way. Oh, they've seen things floating through the air with him on the other side of the room. They've heard things happen in one room and he's been in another. But they are like, what is that about? So when they ask him about it, he's like, I didn't do that. He doesn't. He's denying it. But like a bunch of people are going to be like, it was him all along. But like you said, no chance. So they do a polygraph. And what they do in the polygraph is they're like asking him about the measuring tapes. And they're like, did you do that? And he's like, no. And he passes. So they know that they don't have a baseline. Basically, they don't have a baseline. But the other thing is they're like, he is the spirit. Like if this isn't a, a spirit outside of him it or an energy outside of him, it could be taking him over as well. Because, like, possession yeah. is, like, in the neighborhood of poltergeist. And, like, did the spirit make him do this? And he doesn't have any But, like, the fact that he thinks he's being honest with them, also they're like, okay, we saw those weird spikes when we yeah. did his brainwaves. What are those? Like, that feels like he's doing this and he doesn't know he's doing it, but he's also doing it through telekinesis and he doesn't know that he's doing it, but he is behind all of it in this way. Ugh. <sighs> Basically, okay, this part is so weird. But the people that are observing this are also believe in the supernatural in a lot of ways. And the supernatural believe that mirrors can open paranormal pathways. So the idea what is, is by putting going on the two-way mirror. Yes. Did oh they open a pathway? We're like adding more questions with no, we're no closer to a fucking solution Agreed. at this point. Agree. So what they do know is that this kid wants to be with Mabel. And he wants this stuff to stop happening because he has a full understanding that if things stop flying through the air and breaking, he could live with his grandma. So this is not whatever is happening. It's absolutely not intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1965, his mom gets who had been caught gets released. From prison. After getting released, she's murdered by people that wanted revenge because she killed their boxer. Like, the remember, here, the husband was, like, involved in the mob boxing. Oh, ring. my God. So she gets murdered. All this happens before Ernie's 18 years old. And when he's 18, all the incidents have stopped and he joins the Marine Corps. Um, and Tell me that's, that's it. It's 100% never solved. It is oh pretty my much God. it. What I will tell you is that he stayed in New Jersey and that he had kids and that sometimes strange things still happen in his house. And his wife was like, yeah, sometimes things break or drop and I can't explain it. But again, we don't think he's doing it on purpose, but he might have a special brain. Like it's like very Whoa. superhero. Then there's a story his wife says that is so spooky. She says that one night she woke up. Oh, no. And she saw a man right by their windowsill. 
and then he just like vanished. She wakes up Ernie and she's like, there was just a man sitting right there. There was a man right there. She describes what he looks like. And Ernie is super, super calm. And he's like, just go back to sleep. Don't worry about it. And she says it was like he knew something she didn't. Like he had seen something before. Pass. Divorce. (laughs) Divorce. So then it's like, is it Ernie's dad? And he's like, I always see that guy. Like, it's just, there's so many questions. Is Ernie telekinetic? And, oh, that makes me so uncomfortable. So the only person that's written about this is this amazing writer, Celia Blancafort. And I'm really excited to tell you that John Ridley signed on to write and direct the film Project Poltergeist. So it's going to be produced by Bloomhouse. I don't know when it's coming out, but we are going to get this in movie form. Which is very exciting. Which is very exciting because it is a wonderful story. Thank you for telling it, Quinn. You told it so well. That was wild. Um, Quinn, we also haven't talked about how we watched a scary movie, which we'll have to talk about next week. Yeah. Um, Hey, dearest readers, um, if you need, you can always join Patreon. We got a lot more episodes, but also feel free to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. Yeah, JK Abs wrote that they hope that we become better known and get more sponsors. And I think that's the right energy to put out. That's a really good energy to put out into the world. We we also got another review that said, sold. I'm all in. You guys are great. My kind of humor, my kind of true crime storytelling. (laughs) Thank you, L Dancer. L Dancer. Hold me closer, L Dancer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Love you guys. Um, Like, subscribe, review, tell a friend. Um, Join Patreon. Goodbye. Goodbye.